0: my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts be now and always acceptable in your sight O lord our rock and our redeemer amen so we had a lot of rain this week and melda showed up kind of unexpectedly did anybody uh, have trouble getting home on thursday thank you thank you uh anybody get water in their home at eight o'clock anybody flood their car my son flooded his car Did anybody have water collecting in their neighborhood? Did anybody feel uh, their anxiety level slightly going up as that was happening? I think we all did that, anxiety. Uh, So we at the school released people, started to release people on Thursday at 11.30. And by 4.30, there were still kids in the school because their parents couldn't get here. All the streets were flooded. We were fine. Streets all around us were flooded. and People couldn't get here. People couldn't get home. Kids are, as you can imagine, anxious to get home. They weren't that worried, but there's that general sense of anxiety. I, this morning's parable in Luke, is a, I like to think, is about getting home trying, get home, trying to get home, trying to get a home. It's a famously difficult parable. Joseph Fitzmaier says there are few passages in the Synoptic Gospels more puzzling than the well-known story about the dishonest manager. And Kenneth Bailey says, many commentators affirm that this parable is the most difficult of all the synoptic parables. So let's have a look at it. It's in uh, your bulletin. Please turn to Luke chapter 16 in your bulletin. And uh, we'll just summarize it. It's a well-known passage, and it seems to kind of make sense until you start digging in a little bit, and then you think, what's going on? So verse 1, there's a rich man who has a manager. Now, it's funny that I always thought of the there are stories in the last chapter that the father was rich, but there's no indication that the father with two sons was rich. But after this, we have another story about a rich man at the end of chapter 6, and I think Father Bates is covering that next week. So in verse 1, he is the manager. The manager is accused of squandering his master's property. The same word used about the prodigal son, that he squandered his inheritance. We aren't told what the mismanagement was, nor even if the accusation was founded. Was he really squandering it, or was it just somebody libeling him? Regardless, in verse 2, the rich man rather fires the man, his manager, on the spot, and he says, in the Greek, it's not really, give me an accounting. Any accountants here? (laughs) He doesn't doesn't say, give me an accounting. He says, give me the account books. Give me the books back, which he doesn't have on him. We'll see. Verse 3, The manager doesn't have the books, but he does realize he's in a tight spot. Verse 4, he comes up with a plan. A plan to find a home when this home is taken away from him. Notice the phrase that they will welcome me into their homes. In verse 5, 6, and 7, he puts into uh, operation his plan. He's got the books still. He hasn't given them back yet. And he takes the opportunity to do a little fancy accounting. Is the manager... compounding his dishonesty, digging himself in deeper, or might he be subtracting his own commission that would have been coming to him anyway? That's a possibility, that these managers, when they were dealing with the suppliers, they would add their commission. So maybe he was just taking it off. Anyway, the manager comes up with a shrewd scheme to cook the books so as to ingratiate himself to those who are in debt to his master so that he will be welcomed into their homes when he is thrown out on his ear. But well, then we come to verse 8. And the master hears of this scheme. And instead of being angry and vindictive. He's impressed with the shrewdness of his dealings. And commends him. It's rather a strong verb in Greek. He sort of lifts him up. and In verse 8. He goes on to say. This is how you should, the sons of this, the children of this age are more shrewd in their dealings than the children of light. And Jesus seems to commend this whole thing to his disciples. What is it he's commending? Well, I think we need to to think that when the manager is commending this, he's saying something like, this is a fraud, but it is a most ingenious fraud. And this steward is a rascal, but he is a wonderfully clever rascal. I don't think Jesus is commending His use of money. But Jesus could be taken to saying this is a model for how disciples should act with their money. But I think it's more about how disciples should act in being a part of the kingdom. There's lots of unanswered questions. Were the accusations true and accurate against the manager? Why doesn't the manager argue his case? One of the commentators said, in the Middle East, he just wouldn't have walked away silently. He would have argued his case. And has anyone seen Downton Abbey, the movie yet? So we went to see it last night. We lined up in front of Jerry Ballard and uh, Gay Russi and everybody from, who I know from the church. So uh, in the first episode, of course, Lord Grantham hires, uh, is going to hire Bates, and it's not going to work out. Do you remember this? I if you've seen the story. So all, his, all the other servants don't like Mr. Bates, so they try to get him fired. And in the end, Lord Grantham sort of says, I'm going to have to let you go. And Bates pleads with him, I really want to stay, please let me stay. And that's kind of more reasonable for someone who's being let go. Why why are you letting me go? Please give me a second chance. And in the end, of course, Mr. Bates stays. Is Jesus commending this kind of creative activity to his disciples? Is this parable teaching primarily about our use of money? How to be more like the children of this age, using our money to take care of ourselves? It seems to end that way when the end of the gospel says you cannot serve God and wealth. It is not at, it's at the heart about how we use our money, but it's rather about how we find our home. How passionate we are to be shrewd and wise and make sure we don't squander what God has given us. So just put it in context then. We're going to look a little bit at the chapter ahead of us, Luke 15. My comments are built on the excellent sermon by Father Bates last week. And uh, if you weren't here last week and didn't hear it, I'd encourage you to go to our church webpage and download it. How many people have ever gone to our church webpage and downloaded a sermon they missed? I would encourage you to do that. It's such an easy resource, please, because often these sermons kind of build on each other. So these are stories, the prodigal son and the steward, about characters trying to get home. Look at the parallels between the two stories of the prodigal son and the manager. Each has a noble master or father who demonstrates extraordinary grace towards the person in his charge, either his son or the steward. Both stories contain an ignoble son or steward, one who squanders what his is rightfully his, and the other who squanders what is his master's. In each, the wayward underling reaches a moment of truth regarding those losses. They, uh, in the steward, it says he says to himself, and in the prodigal son, he comes to himself or he comes to his senses. And I'm just going to use a little bit of Glenn Fry's song, Desperado. getting violin with that no no violin okay sorry okay so Desperata says why don't you come to your senses and i think that's a big part of the parable the prodigal son he comes to himself the steward oh yes now i know what i have to do and in both cases the son or steward throws himself on the mercy of the father or the master and it deals with the problems resulting from a lack of trust and appreciation and how those are solved by god's graciousness So the prodigal son leaves his home, squanders his inheritance, realizes his mistake, comes to himself, finds his way home, is embraced and celebrated by his father. A surprise ending. The shrewd butler squanders what wasn't his to squander, cheated his boss, is being tossed out, comes up with a shrewd scheme, puts it into operation to ensure he will be welcome into someone's home. He also has a surprise ending when his master commends him. What about the elder son? Because I think chapter 15 is really about the elder son. The elder son, full of resentment at his father's graciousness towards his younger brother, when he himself has done everything required of him. He has diligently fulfilled his responsibilities, but he has not understood who his father really is. And at the end of that story, of course, he won't even go into the house. He doesn't come to himself. He asks the servant, what's going on? Well, your brothers come home and they've thrown a party. And the son, full of rage, dishonors his father by not coming into the house. What does the father do? Another surprise ending. The father comes out to him, tries to plead with him to come back in, but he seems to stand on his ground. What happened in each of the stories? Prodigal son, the elder son, and the steward. We don't know. It's interesting to think why does it not end what happened to the prodigal son does he become a son again or is he going to be a servant the elder son does he continue to refuse to come in or is he continually alienated from his father or is he reconciled and the steward after the met, his boss commends him does the boss say well come back work for me because you're so shrewd or does he say yeah you're done so we don't know And it poses a question that invites us into the story. Who do we associate with? If we had to place ourselves in one of those stories, who would we be? The prodigal son who didn't understand the father and wasted it, but comes to himself and comes back? The elder son who's done everything necessary, followed all the rules, but hasn't really understood the graciousness of the father? Or the steward who cheats and yet is forgiven and comes back? And so each of these stories makes us wonder, what would I do if I was in that situation? I think there is a universal desire to find a home, to feel at home. We live such a transient life, it's hard to know where our home is sometimes. No longer are we on the property that has been in our family for generations, I don't think. Anyone here have property that's been in the family for generations. Where I came from in Canada, it's quite common. People be on the farm for five generations. That was their home. Where is your home? On Friday, there was... Turn back, if you would, to the collect. It's an interesting collect today uh, on page three. In light of the climate strike on Friday, grant us, Lord, not to be anxious about earthly things, but to love things heavenly. There's some evidence that the people most thoughtful about heaven are indeed the most useful about things of the earth and not the accusation that's leveled against some Christians. They're so heavenly-minded, they're no earthly good. We are going to have to take care of the earthly things of our planet. And the children around the world are starting to realize it's not going to help much to know their scientific formulas if there's no world, if there's not clean air and clean water to live. And so millions of people around the world walked out of their schools and workplaces on Friday. It's not going to affect me much. It's all going to take 20 or 40 years, and I'll be long gone. But it will affect my children and your children and your grandchildren. And it's interesting that on Tuesday, there is the United Nations General Assembly and the Climate Action Summits in New York. this coming Tuesday. To pray for them, for wisdom, for boldness, for creativity, for hope and faith. Some of our young people don't even want to think about it because it's too overwhelmingly bleak. But it needn't be. There's a great speaker coming to Houston on uh, next Saturday. If you're interested in details, I could tell you. And then, so we need to take care of the, church, the, the climate in our world. But I also want to talk about this church as our home. This building. This gathering, this worship. I love when kids come here. And I'm hoping that when the little kids come here, they feel they are more at home here than anywhere. Because this is God's house, and God made them, and God is there for them. And so when when they come, they need to feel comfortable, that, that they belong here, this is their home. And in the process of growing up, they become aware of God's splendor and glory, and how we relate to Him. And how to show respect and adoration and how to care for one another. And all those things begin happening as they grow. But it begins with, this is where you belong. So I love when kids come. When babies cry in church, I often think, I bet that's how my prayers sound to God. I think they're so sophisticated. But I bet it says, I don't know. And so it's a great reminder when we have children cry in church. So in a real sense, this gathering around the altar or the table is our home. And just like the prodigal son, this is where we're called to come to our senses and remember who we are. And like the uh, the, uh, dishonest steward, this is where we begin to use our shrewdness in the right way. What can we do? And this is where we learn not to squander, not to squander or take for granted the things God has given to us. If you were to start a new church, what do you think you might call that church? It's interesting, the, the, there's lots of new churches starting, it's interesting to see what they're named. What would you name a new church? I asked someone, they said, I think I'd call it The Table, The Table. The Table. A gathering around. You know, in the Book of Common Prayer in Canada, this is never referred to as an altar. The word altar doesn't appear in the Book of Common Prayer in the Canadian edition. It's always the table. It's the Lord's table, and we're invited to that table. We gather around, and we make room for one another. So like the steward, we gather here to engage our mind. We do not, as Christians, park our minds at the door. We are called to think deeply. We are called to love earnestly. We're called to fire up our soul to make a difference, to dream and plan and deliberate, not only about how we get home, but how do we bring the world home to who they really are, made in God's image, that there is faith and hope. And it comes together in the most wonderful way when we're caught up in the worship of God. The Archbishop of of Canterbury, William Temple, has a wonderful quote about worship. Would you just close your eyes as I read this? Worship is the submission of all of our nature to God. It is the quickening of conscience by his holiness, the nourishment of mind with his truth, the purifying of imagination by his beauty, the opening of the heart to his love, the surrender of will to his purpose, and all of this gathered up in adoration the most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable and therefore the chief remedy for that self-centeredness which is our original sin and the source of all actual sin. We have come to worship as a community, to remember who we are, to make our schemes and plans to, to make a difference in this world, to perceive God's movement in the world and align ourselves with it. And then we'll come at the end of this service to the little phrase, let us go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's called the dismissal. And when I was growing up, I thought, oh, good, it's over. I can get back to what I want to do. But, of course, dismissal comes from the root word mission. And at the end of this, we are to go out and do the things that God has placed in our hearts that we've understood we've become fired up about to love and help and be engaged and embrace the challenges of the world I used to uh, I love asking the kids at school why do Christians meet on a Sunday and uh, they say what's the day of rest and I grew up thinking that I thought Sunday I got to go and rest and relax and maybe fall asleep and I said no the day of rest is the Sabbath that's Friday night to Saturday night that still is always has been Christians gather for worship on Sunday because it's the day of resurrection, it's the day of power, it's the day of doing something. And I think of our gathering in worship like before a football game where the team gets all dressed and into their locker room and they get the the prep the pep talk and then they start bouncing and they rush onto the field to do the game. And so this, my friends, is the pep talk. But we're going out from here when we leave to make a difference to talk to people, to see things differently and to, uh, to be about God's will and to bring glory to him. In the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Amen.